because the beginning is so important because we do so much at the beginning, right, Amanda, Stephen? I mean, last week was like so much done in the introduction. Okay, why don't we go ahead and get started. Um, TJ, we're good with sound. We're ready to go, whatever that thing too. We're good with it. All right, great. Okay, I'm going to pray for us, and then we're, this is going to be the practical part, but we're going to also establish a couple of things. So we've got four classes together on spiritual disciplines. We're going to establish what a spiritual discipline is today. Uh, thanks to uh, Stephen and I interacting. It was very helpful for me to think about that and for us and to look at a little bit of the history of it so that I got just chasing rabbit trails today, which is good. But we're going to do that, and then we're going to get practical today about how to listen to God, uh, specifically with the Bible. And then next week, we'll take another layer, and we'll look at some others. Uh, but I'm going to go uh, in a concentric circles out. So I'm going to do the most important ones, I think, from our tradition, would be good for us to implement in our lives, and then I'll show, I'll, I'll certainly tell you what I'm going to do today, all the ones that are out there, um, but I'm going to zero in on a, a certain few, and if you want to expand and do that, I'll be more than happy to direct you to resources for that, um, but we'll look at that next week and the week after, okay? All right, so let me pray for us. And then we'll get started. So, Lord, we thank you for this day. We thank you that you're uh, our good shepherd, and you shepherd us all the days of our life to this moment now. Uh, you do make us lie down in green pastures. You do lead us beside still waters. You do restore our soul. You do lead us on right paths, healing paths for your name's sake, even when we must walk in valleys of deep darkness. And um, so for some of us, we're in those valleys. And uh, we need you just like we do at the green pastures and the still waters and restful, peaceful places. Um, so, Lord, would you at this time um, deepen our community and our friendship, uh, deepen with clarity to the mind, realness to the heart, even uh, more of the wonders of who you are and the wonders of your work. And then even on a practical level, uh, talking about some of these disciplines of grace. Uh, we pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, everybody. Here's how we're going to get started. We're going to uh, really start defining what a spiritual discipline is. So here's my first question for us. Well, no, yeah. No, here's my first one. That's actually going to be the second one. Remember, what is our goal? We're looking at a class on spiritual disciplines. What is our goal for looking at spiritual disciplines? Uh, why are we doing this? Um, how do we, hello Roberts, dude, I'm so glad you're doing well. How do, how do we want to approach spiritual disciplines? What's the goal? What's our approach? Uh, let's just nail that down so we all know what we're doing. We all know which direction we're going. Um, and that will help us. Yes. Excellent. Whatever discipline, it must be word-centered. Excellent. Anybody else? What is our goal? 
What is the goal of this class on spiritual disciplines? How do we want to approach you spiritual disciplines? Is the goal to get it right, a truth camp, right? Is the goal to get it felt, the experience or mystic camp? What's the goal, do you remember? Yes. Our goal on whatever the spiritual discipline is, is to experience Jesus and his salvation, right, by faith, mystic, mystical, right, with the Bible, intelligent. And so our goal, we could say, is to experience Jesus with the Bible, if you just want a quick snappy phrase, or be an intelligent mystic, another image, right, not just a mystic, experience camp, not just intelligent, the doctrinal truth camp, but an intelligent mystic where there's no false dichotomy between the mind and the heart. Or we could say the goal is to make Jesus and his salvation more clear to your mind, more real to your heart. So whatever discipline, spiritual disciplines we employ, it's that goal, right? Because you can approach the disciplines in another way, right, even beyond just the, the truth way, the intelligent way, or the mystic experience way, you could approach it as a moralist, right, that this is the way you activate God in your life, right? You do these things and you activate God. That's a moralist. You could approach it with being an anti-spiritual discipline person, right? And don't do anything, right? No reading the Bible, no prayer, none of that, right? That would be the younger brother or the older brother approach. That's always going to be, Jesus told the story of the world by telling us about two sons. Those two sons can apply to every area of our life, from parenting to how you relate to God to um, how you employ spiritual disciplines or not employ them if you're the younger son, right? See how this works? As we gain a grammar, I just want to give you some language that helps you. Uh, for me, I, when I hear a good teacher, like when I, if there's books that I go to over and over again because they gave me a grammar or they gave me images I hadn't heard before about something I've already known about. And I'd be like, oh, the grammar, uh, some more language to the gospel. Oh, a vivid image about the gospel. Mm, right? So that's what we're trying to do. I'm trying to give you some sticky statements, some grammar, and some vivid images to help us. All right. So here we go. Um, what are spiritual disciplines? What are they? I mean, if you were just a take a stab at trying to, what are they? What would you say? What are they? And then, you know, since we're talking, how long is your list? And where did you get your list? What giant in church history? What tradition? What theological stripe? Because what 
and how you define spiritual discipline and how long and short your list is depends on who you're talking about and who you're talking to and what tradition you're a part of. So I'm going to give you uh, the origin of it today, and then I'm going to give you our tradition, because that's the only one I think is the right tradition, because <laughs> we want to be right. All right, what do you think? What is a spiritual discipline? If you were to think about it, you would say, okay, a spiritual discipline is this, a spiritual discipline is that. It's not this, it's about this. How does this even happen? How do we even talk? Why are we even talking about spiritual disciplines? Steve, go, and then Pete. Excellent. Some way to train your heart and your mind. I'm going to repeat this because I don't know if everybody can hear. Some way to train your heart and mind, right, in knowing God, the realities of Christianity, a relationship with Jesus. Pete? Excellent. Yes. Good, good. Dad. Patterns. Yeah. So exercises, practices, patterns. Um, excellent. Uh, kind of a, a classic way is spiritual practices or exercises to form spiritual formation, to foster spiritual formation. That's the language today. So if you want to know what the language today is, everybody talks about spiritual formation. Right. How are you being spiritually formed? What are your practices of spiritual formation? Uh, that's, if you go to seminary today, it doesn't matter if you go to a conservative one, a Bible-believing one, a moderate one, a non-Bible-believing uh, one. Across the board, it doesn't matter, liberal, conservative, uh, any approach to the Bible, everyone has a spiritual formation class. Everyone. Isn't that interesting? We can't find unity on the Bible. We can't find unity on all these other topics that are most essential. But, dadgummit, we are unified in spiritual formation, that it is important. Now, what spiritually forms you, that's up for grabs. But that everybody needs to be spiritually formed is not. I just think that's, like, so fascinating to me. So when I was in a spiritual formation class when I was getting my doctorate and they were telling us, I mean, one of my friends was with it with me and, and he was just, he couldn't, he said, I, I, I just couldn't stop laughing thinking of you doing this spiritual formation exercise. That they were asking us to just sit there in silence and listen to yourself. <clears throat> and um, so I'm sitting there and I'm like, oh, this is hell for me. Right? Listening to myself. Why do I want to listen to myself? And he's over there just chuckling because he knows me. And he's just like, oh, my word, that's hilarious. Yeah. How, did, how did your listening to yourself go? Okay. Um, spiritual practices to foster spiritual formation. So how many are there? How many exercises, practices, um, forms, uh, disciplines? 
how many ways to spiritually form yourself are out there? How long, how short is your list? And I'm going to give you the origin. I found this out today. There's a guy named Ignatius of Loyola. Loyola. What is it? Yes, that's it. 1491 to 1556. He's the big name. So he is the founder of the Society of Jesus or the Jesuits. His religious experiences became the basis and core of his spiritual exercises. And it's a classic on Christian spirituality. Uh, it, there's 5,000 editions of this thing, uh, translated into some 30 languages. But he is the starting point for uh, the mass production of spiritual disciplines and spirituality and what we call today spiritual formation. And then you can go to every tradition and theological stripe and every denomination, which is a tradition, and from Methodism and Baptists and Anabaptists and Charismatic and Pentecostal to Presbyterians, and then everyone has their own ways to form you spiritually. So how long and short is your list is basically what's happening. All right, so here's where spiritual disciplines take off, so in the 1400s. So if you're tracking, this is before, this is right on the cusp of the Reformation. But it's happening before the Reformation. I didn't have time, but I would really like to look at how Luther and Calvin thought of these disciplines. It would have been very interesting. Didn't have time to do that, but I would like to. Okay, so here are some of the things that are on the lists. Okay, so here's the, the first spiritual disciplines consisted of things like these. Bible reading and Bible meditation and study. Uh, prayer and vows. Now, there can be all kinds of vows. Uh, there can be vows of poverty. There can be vows of chastity. There can be vows to give certain amounts. There can be vows to abstain from certain things. There can be vows to do certain things. There's lots of vows. And you're thinking, well, what's the limit? There really isn't a limit. There can be a vow like of silence. There can be a vow to hold your tongue because you have a problem with your tongue. There can be a vow to um, fast for three days a week. Do you see how this, there, the vows can go as far as a discipline will allow it. It can be a habit or an exercise or something that you find beneficial to your spiritual formation that was beneficial to your Christian experience, it would become a vow, Okay. Um, there's fasting, which I've already said. There's worship, public worship. Uh, there's stewardship. So uh, part of spiritual disciplines was tithes and offerings and uh, uh, generosity. Okay. Uh, silence and solitude. Journaling. This is a, now we're getting more into today's world. Journaling. Uh, learning. Um, evangelism and missions, service to others, uh, disciplines that control things in your life, disciplines that you do to promote good things, disciplines to control bad things. So like you'd have disciplines to control the tongue, sex, eating, bad habits, sins, 
time. In my day, uh, journaling was a huge one, and so was your time. So there's a guy named Stephen Covey. I don't know if anybody's ever heard of him. Seven Habits for Highly Successful People. In my campus ministry days, that was a sacrament. You had to study Covey. Everyone was trained in Covey, and everyone did time management. I mean, I was the time management king. I mean, I had peop some people, like, they look at their sheets, and they had a 24-hour you know, day, and it would start at a certain time, and then a certain time, and they went by hours. Mine went by 15 minutes. When I went to Russia, and I set up appointments all day, the first time I was there, I'd say, you know, Igor, uh, Vladimir, you know, I'm, we're going to meet here, do this, that, and the other thing. And then I had my first appointment. And at the end of an hour, I'm like, okay, hey, this was great. You have a good day. And he looked at me like, what's happening? Because when he made appointment with me, that's all day. And the next thing I know, I had 20 all-day appointments in my first day. And I had to completely readjust everything. Because when you have coffee or tea or lunch with a Russian, they're spending the night. <laughs> That was a rude awakening for a Western Covey spiritual formation of prioritizing your day into 15-minute segments to be most effective and to do the most important things that you need to do for formation and prioritize your formation discipline. Yeah, you'd want to be trained by me. <laughs> oh, man, I just... Thank God, the Lord saved me. Okay, um, catechism, family devotions and disciplines, disciplines of scripture memory, disciplines of remembering. So there's disciplines for like if you want to remember certain things in the Christian life. So there would be these liturgies of remembering that you would do. And again, the sky's the limit, okay? Okay, so here's the deal. Our tradition's a little different. That's broadly speaking what I just described crosses from Catholic traditions to Eastern traditions to broadly evangelical traditions, all that stuff that I just mentioned. And depending on the generation of church history will depend on what things grabbed more, got underfoot more, that you got traction in the culture and got traction in the church culture. Like... Like time management was huge in the 80s and 90s, right? Late 80s, early 90s. Um, journaling, I don't know if it, some of you still journal? Do people journal today? Okay, journaling then is still, it's got wind in its sails, right? That one hasn't stopped yet. Um, but things will come in and out. You'll see how things will come in and out. So generally speaking, it's a broad, spiritual disciplines are incredibly broad, and they can get very specific depending on your tradition. So it's not helpful. That's why I always say when people want to talk to me about spiritual disciplines, I always go to, well, how, first question is, well, how long and how short do you want your list to be? And then how are you going to prioritize them? So I'm going to give you what our tradition says. 
and I think it's pretty helpful. Our tradition is going to talk about um, spiritual disciplines with different kind of grammar, a different kind of grammar. We're going to talk about spiritual disciplines in this way. Okay? And then this means of grace has a big field of meaning, big field of meaning that you can put subcategories in, like one category called the sacraments that's under this. But it's going to be distinct from other categories. Does this make sense? The sacraments... Um, and I'm going to add one more, and the word, especially, what? Yes. So not your quiet time. It's going to blow you away. I'm actually going to encourage you to do this more than have a quiet time. Completely. When I got this, this like completely revolutionized me, my spiritual formation. <laughs> Do I have quiet times? Yes, whatever that means. Now, this is what's, in our tradition, what's being said here about this category of a means of grace, that this is what's called gospel means. This is means by which God directly acts on you. These are means by which Jesus shows up and gives you himself and his salvation, or what is called in tradition the benefits of Christ. So these are believed to be, and I believe them to be, um, God's means to reach you and renew you, seek you and save you, find you and do something to you. These are his means by which he gives himself to you. These are direct means. These are objective means. In other words, you go to these things because where is God? I don't know where God is. I'm lost. I don't know where he is. The church historically in this tradition says, oh, yes, you do. Go here. He finds you here. I need to be found. I need to be found. Right here. This is, um, and that's why these have, and I should say, especially a preached word, I'm going to add another thing in here because this also is sent. Gospel word. In other words, the sacraments... And the word preached, gospel preaching, is the gospel being given to you. If you notice, all the sacraments are uh, signs and seals of who Jesus is and what he's done. They're not, they have nothing to do with you. And there are traditions that have taken the sacraments and turned them into a discipleship sacrament, like this is of your commitment and something you need to do for your obedience. But in our tradition, these aren't your sacraments. 
These are his. These are a means of grace where Jesus shows up with his salvation to meet you, feed you, justify you, sanctify you, make you a healthy Christian and make healthy churches. So do you see how radical this is? If you take, if this is a view of, of the sacraments and the word, but then you turn the sacraments into more of a badge of what you've done. You get baptized because you've made a profession as opposed to baptism is something God does. Well, that'll determine, you know, whether you baptize babies or not, definitely. And is the Lord's Supper a memorial of you remembering? Or is the Lord's Supper food that Jesus feeds you himself? That's a whole different ballgame. Do you see how this works? Okay, so the other thing is there's another means of grace that has more of a, uh, a response to it. So the church, like Augustine would say, the word, and there are two visible words. So these are words, which means this is God's word coming for you. Baptism, the Lord's Supper. You got the preached word, you got baptism and the Lord's Supper. Visible, he called them visible words because they're objective. They're gospel reality. They're the gospel for you in a visual form. They're the gospel for you in the hearing preached form. But they're the gospel, and that means they're not primarily, they're not about you at all. They're all about Jesus and what he does. Does that make sense? So this is huge. The next is our response to grace. So it's, there are means of grace, but there's also now you responding in a relationship to grace. Now there's going to be disciplines or means of grace that come out of this dynamic. Like prayer. Okay. Like worship and when we mean worship we mean public and notice how public worship carries these three and then adds another singing and then adds others like some um, teaching Instruction. This would be your affirmations, your confession, right? Um, there would also be things like under prayer, like confession of sin. Do you see how that, this, that's why I'm saying it's like this has got a little more to it. But prayer, worship, um, friendship. I should do it this way. I'm going to, just so we, 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 see it a little more clear. Everybody talks about fellowship, right? And buzzword community, you know, and now we're, I'm trying to, we're trying to push in a little bit more and, oh, uh, you know, those words are old. I mean, they're so overused, nobody knows what it means. Everybody talks about community. So what I want us to be thinking about when we start community fellowship, koinonia, you know, then you use the Greek as if that's going to help. Um, 
I want you to think of redemptive friendships. Oops. And communities. Do you see the difference? You can have all kinds of friendships and community, but are they redemptive? That's a whole that's a whole other way to relate. These are gospel friendships and a gospel community. Remember what C.S. Lewis said? He said, lovers look at each other, admiring each other. So I have my lover. I don't need any. I don't have any others. What I need is friends, right? And friends, and what you need are friends are people that stand side by side looking at the same thing. That's a friend. What? You too? Looking at the same thing. And so we're a community, we're friends that are looking at one thing, Jesus and his salvation. That's our team. So other people are looking at social justice. Other people are looking at being an anti-racist. Other people are looking at uh, political ideologies and parties. Other people... But we're about looking at Jesus and his salvation. That's our team. That's Redeemer's team. Okay? Redemptive friendships and communities. All right. The other thing is, I had others down here. Let me look and see if I'm missing something. Oh, yes. It's an old word. Witness. And that's why we say making friends and having gospel conversations. That these are means of grace in a general sense. They're called general meanings. Horton calls them um, means of gratitude. It's, they're, they're in a guilt, grace, gratitude form. Uh, that's fine. I, I grew up our tradition grows up. You have a means of grace as a broad category. There's a very specialized meaning of means of grace that's unique to the others, and that is these are clearly gospel means. These are just like instituted by Jesus to come save you and, and sanctify you, okay? And then there's uh, a more holistic relational reality of what these means do to us and and are working in us, and then we're expressing it, and, and now we're into things like prayer. Um, and worship is unique because it encompasses this, so it actually jumps up to here, right? Because the sacraments happen in worship, but it's not fully designated in that way uh, when you're talking about the means. So you have redemptive friendships and community, then you have witness, which is making friends and having gospel conversations. Right, so it's still relational and it's still redemptive. Uh, this is, you know, what's been called evangelism, missions, that kind of stuff, right? And then there's also service, service to others, and it starts with your family, and then it goes with uh, your brothers and sisters in Christ, Christians, church and to your neighbor. This is how the church in our tradition has thought of these things. 
and evangelicals and broadly face this way. Let's see if there's any others. Oh, this is one that doesn't make many's list. Uh, church discipline. Yeesh. What's church discipline? Church discipline is uh, Galatians 6. Uh, it's seeking to restore um, and recover. It's seeking those who get entrapped in their sin and need help. Okay. Anything here surprising or not surprising? Yeah, isn't that interesting? That's so good. Um, no. Um, <laughs> it's not because of the anointing, but it's because it's the outside word coming at us. It's the gospel being proclaimed to us because it's the medium of God speaking and hearing the organ, the main organ of spiritual disciplines in this tradition is the ear. But remember, it's not just going into the truth camp because the ear for this tradition is clarity to the mind, realness to the heart, or faith. Faith has clarity to the mind, realness to the heart, whatever that is. So uh, the preaching, so we, where do we go? We go to Romans 10. Remember, it's like, how are they... Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Well, how can they? Remember that logic? And the answer was by a preacher proclaiming good news to them. That's how. And by, by preaching good news, Jesus shows up. Remember we talked about that objective or subjective genitive? Remember that one? That good grammar lesson we had last week? It's a great question. Yeah, Luther used to always say, and Calvin would say, man, I, I, I can't find the gospel inside of me. I need someone to beat it into my head. I need someone outside of me to tell me good news. And the spirit, and remember, and this is important too, the spirit is married to these things. To this up here. So in that sense, it is an anointing. The spirit and the word go together, visible, written, proclaimed. Okay. Now, the response, uh, this has the word in all of its forms, and that's what we're going to look at today in our remaining time. So let's go ahead and do that. We've got 20 minutes. I do not want to get caught again, like, not getting done. All right, spiritual practices. So you, you might ask, self or Jeff, why are there so many different exercises and disciplines and practices? Because what ends up happening is, and this is important to remember, and this is what we've tried to employ in this church. And what ends up happening with some of us um, is we get these confused. We are fixed. Fixed. I can tell you, I've been accused, oh, you changed the vision. And I'm like, no, no. 
I'm not going to say what I was going to say. No, we have not. What we've changed is the form. And that tells me you don't know the difference between a fixed gospel vision and fixed gospel theology, fixed gospel doctrine, and flexible methodology. Or forms. So the reason why there are so many things like, you can employ them, like solitude, if it's a form that helps any of these things. You see what I'm saying? This is fixed in our tradition. Now, other people have other, their lists are longer with fixed things. But if you were to really push those fixed things, you'd find that they're really flexible. Journaling is a flexible form. For some people, journaling is just this. Really, right? You see what I'm saying? So some of those things like journaling and, and those things that have that come in and out of our culture, time management, <laughs> whatever it is, uh, it's really just a flexible method. It's just a form. It's not anything that's really fixed. This stuff is fixed, but it can have flexible forms. I mean, are, are small groups, community groups, are those fixed? No, those are forms. Are Sunday schools fixed? No, those are forms. Is Christian education fixed? No, those are forms, right? Are concerts of prayer fixed? No, those are forms. Is corporate prayer in church fixed? No, that's a form. You see how this works? But it is certain music styles fixed? No, that's a form. Or we would have... Um, uh, song book one in the Bible, which we don't have. So there's a fixed vision. So when we end up changing forms, we get accused of changing the vision. But what that really exposes in the person is they don't even know what the fixed form is. They thought that was the fixed form. And that's a classic. It happens all the time. It's like, when you have a doctrine and you make an application of the doctrine and then that generation understands that it's an application of the doctrine, but then their children take the application and turn it into a doctrine. And then by the third generation, there's no more doctrine. There's only this practice. And then nobody likes the practice because it's not effective in that generation. They throw out that practice and they get accused of being a heretic. See how this works? It's fun. Church is so fun. What's that? Yeah. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Yep. Yes. Yeah, so this stuff is fixed. We would say the means of grace 
Yeah, the means of grace in a narrow sense and the means of grace in a broad sense are fixed. Uh, the flexible methods and forms can come around that, right? Public worship is fixed. Do not forsake. That's in the context of public worship. That's not in the context of, you know, just have Christian friends. Yes. Gordon. Yeah, that's really good. Steve and I had a, a, an email conversation. It was so, so good. So how do you know um, you have these fixed realities, right, that we want to have a part of our life? But remember how we talked about, but we can handle them in a wrong way. We can handle them like an older brother, and we can handle them like our younger brother. Younger brother doesn't do them. Older brother thinks they activate God and he's better or she's better for doing them, that it makes them feel loved, it makes them connect with God, it makes them think they're going to get God's blood. There's all kinds of things that can come with that, right? And so you look at forms and we want to hold, form, we want to hold these things in a gospel way, right? But you know the fallen condition of your heart, you know the fallen condition of other people's hearts, so it takes wisdom, it takes grace to actually do them. So what does that mean? Well, it means like when my kids spend 10 hours a day in school and then they go to church and it feels just like school, I'm going to blow that up just for their sake. I'm going to blow it up because I don't want them by the form, by the mere place in their life to think church is another academic exercise or duty. So what am I going to do? I'm going to toss out the catechism and I'm going to read the Jesus storybook Bible to them. And I'm going to give them, hey, let's, let's fill in a beautiful pictures and grammar of Jesus. And then they start asking me questions. But dad, and now? I bring in the catechism part. But I bring them in not by saying, have you memorized question number three yet? While we're driving to school, hey, tell me number three. Oh, you've got the therefore thou wrong. You know, it's going to be more like, um, I mean, I had, Ty asked me this, and I, he hasn't been catechized. I haven't even catechized him. He asked me, Dad, so does God have a body? Why can't we see him? Like, why doesn't he have a body? And I'm able to talk to him about that and then say, but he actually did have a body. And because he had a body, you're saved. Because if he didn't have a body, we're not saved. It's just a, how am I going to handle it? Am I going to handle it in a gracious way? And, and that's why people say, well, I wish the Bible would have just laid out every instance on how to do things. Instead, the Bible says, no, it's called wisdom. And wisdom you know what wisdom is? Wisdom is believing the gospel in all kinds of life situations. You're not given a how-to. You're actually told, believe the gospel. And sometimes wisdom looks like answering the fool. And sometimes wisdom looks like not answering the fool, which are both in Proverbs right next to each other. 
Well, how do you know? Exactly. Right? So, you know in the life of your child, okay, we need a little more structure here. You know in the life of your child, toss the structure. Toss it. You know in your own life. What do you think I had to do when I was going to re-engage my relationship with Jesus? What do you think Jeff Hatton had to do, Mr. Covey, who breaks his life down into 15-minute segments? Does he need to add more to his schedule? Does he need to get more discipline? No. You know what I had to do? I had to actually put, I had to, I couldn't even read the Bible when I was crashing in that world. Because every time I read it, I was reading law, which is what I is a good thing. But I saw no gospel because I'm a moralist. So every time I opened the Bible, it was just like, I finally realized I couldn't do it. Up until probably, up until that conversation, if you read the book, up until a conversation I had in a Wildwood beach with about 15, 20-something inebriated, half-dressed college students, um, I thought I was crushing it spiritually because I was so freaking disciplined, right? And then I was, I was burning out of exhaustion in the roots of my being. I'd gone all over the world. I'd gone to unreached areas. I was doing stuff that hadn't been done and was exhausted at the roots of my being. And then when I, that summer, God just basically said to me while I'm sharing Christ with unbelievers, he said, yeah, Jeff, how about you? How do you need me as a Christian? And it was like, you know, they're asking me now, and I couldn't shake it. I mean, I'm, I literally, I'm like, and they're asking me, so how do you know the Bible's true? And I'd go, oh, yeah. And then they'd say, how do you know? And I'm like, good, good. Are you guys done? Because I, I got to go. And they're because like, I wanted to shut this thing down. I need to go think about that, right? And the whole way home, I'm, and they're like, they wouldn't leave me. In fact, many of them became Christians. And I'm not even in it at all. I'm like, oh, yeah, come on. Right, y'all done yet? No, no, no. We need to know about I need to go. It's like late. I've been talking to y'all for like three hours. It's time for me to go. Can we ask you one more question? And then on the way home, I'm thinking, why do I need Jesus as a Christian? Because for me, Jesus was how you became a Christian. I had no concept of Jesus being the engine, the fuel, the life, the everything as a Christian. Because I had Covey. And I had all my spiritual disciplines. And I had all my spiritual formation, things that I was doing. I mean, I was a classic monk in an evangelical world. Right? And all of a sudden, I'm in Dr. Hannah's class. That fall, that fall gospel 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 and I was just fed up with it I went up to him and I said you keep talking about the gospel gospel I even did that I think I might I might have made a face at him I would like to ask do you remember did I make a face at you when I say gospel 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 Dr. Hannah do you mean evangelism and then you know the classic line many of you've heard it Jeff do you know what my philosophy of teaching is no, I do not. If you throw a brick into a pack of dogs, the one that yelps is the one you hit. Are you calling me a dog? That's what I said to him. And then he said, Jeff, listen, the gospel's for pastors too. It's for pr 
Christians do. And the gospel's not what you do. You don't do a thing. It's what someone else has done for you. And because it's done for you, it's your life. It's everything. And somehow he started giving me a grammar of the gospel, talking about gospel in ways I never heard before, never understood. And the roots of my being are being like made alive again. So you got to know when you're, where are you in this process? Some of you need to like take the pedal off the stuff. You need to take the pedal off all these things. And that's what we're going to do. What I want to do tonight in our remaining time, I want to absolutely like share with you what revolutionized my approach to the Bible. And how did I rebuild my relationship to the scriptures? How did I rebuild a relationship with God in a whole new way now? So here's what we're going to do. We're going to call this, I'm going to do practical. I got 10 minutes and it's always like I'm right here at the end and I didn't get to daggum practical. So here we go. So you're going to have to bear with me and we're going to do this. I have, I'm skipping that. Nope, skipping that. We're getting rid of that. I'm not doing it. I'm going right to the practical. You ready? Practical listening, being a good listener. I want you to have in your mind, I'm going to be a good listener. So the first thing I'm going to do, I'm going to hear Luther yelling at me, shut up and listen. That's what you're going to do. You're going to start your approach to the Bible now. When you open your Bible, shut up and listen. You're going to hear Luther's words. He's encouraging you. Shut up and listen. It's not about you making something happen. It's not about you finding God. It's not about you mastering the text. It's not about you reasoning and mastering and controlling what's happening in the Bible. It's not about that at all. It's about you shutting up and listen. So how do you listen? I want you to, here's some things I want you to think about, and then I'm going to give you some absolute practical ways to do that, okay? Here's what I want you to think about. Oh, I'll take too much time. Let's just say it. Um, come to the Bible as a listener. Come to the Bible with empty hands. Empty your hands. Don't come to the Bible with anything in your hands. Don't come to the Bible with your prayers, your petitions, your confessions, Empty your hands and come to the Bible to listen. Don't come to the Bible with, you know, I got to bring this, whatever this is. Come to the Bible with empty hands. Uh, come as a listener. Come to be spoken back to life again. That to me is everything to me. I, I get up in the morning and I'll, I'll look at the text. I'll, I got a way that I'm reading and I'm like, oh, God. That's the first thing I say. Oh, God, speak me back to life again. That's it. That's all the prayer I have. And then I read. And I read. And I read. And I just listen. It's one of the most freeing. It's the most liberating. It's like, it's not on me. To keep my relationship with God going, it's not on me at all. Help me listen. Maybe that's a second prayer. Speak me back to life again. That's my prayer. And that's all I pray when I open the scriptures. That's it. Um, so I don't have a, you know, Jerusalem prayer book of praying for the world. I don't have any of that stuff. Um, expect to learn how to listen. Listening's not an easy thing. Expect to be personally reached and renewed by God in and with this text. In other words, you want to be spoken back to life again in this text. Learn to listen to God in and with and through the text. 
shut up and listen. In other words, you're coming to the Bible because the Bible has its own divine energies. You don't bring the energy to this thing. The Bible has its own divine energies, and that means God has his own agenda with you, and he's going to speak you back to life again. It's on him to do that. It's not on you. You don't make anything happen. You don't got to find a nugget. And then you had a successful quiet time, something you can remember and use in the next 10 minutes with somebody you meet on the street. You think I'm crazy. That's how I live. Yes, thank you, Joanne. Chandra gets it too. <laughs> Expect to find Jesus waiting in the text for you. Where are you, Jesus? I don't know where you are. Expect that he's waiting for you in that text. He's waiting to find you in that text. These are just things to think about when you're thinking about listening. Expect your mental and emotional faculties to be ignited by the divine energies in the text, not to be ignited by you. You have no ignition. You don't even have a pilot light. You're out. The gospel's the power of God. Jesus unleashes heaven on you in the text. All right, so the Bible imparts its own divine energy. So put aside the need to make something happen. Put aside the need to find God. Put aside the need to control the Bible, control God. Well, I don't do that. Yes, you do. Oh, I'll prove it. Okay. You try to master the meaning of the text. You can't move on until you solve what it means. You think and think and think and think and think and think and think. Endlessly think. Put that aside. Put it aside. You should be absolutely relaxing. This should be the most refreshing thing you do. This should be like, this is the most comfortable place on the planet in the cosmos. This is the safest place in the world right here as God speaks me back to life again. Well, what does that look like, Jeff? Exactly. But I got to quant... Exactly. You don't have to quantify anything. Therefore, here are some other things. Now I'm going to get some practical stuff for you. Um, if you have the book, you can actually find all that stuff in there. But I am going to, there's what's called a listening tool. I'm going to mention some of the things I think will be helpful, and then I'm going to add. Here's what I do. I do three reads. You don't have to do three reads. But I do three reads. I can get real specific on some things that help me see, help me listen. But what I want you to do is to think about this. I want you to think about when you're listening, you have the freedom to experience the text. You have the freedom to be struck by something in the text. You have the freedom to find the aha in the text. You have the freedom to listen to characters. You have freedom. You have freedom to feel the force of the text. You have freedom to ask questions of the text and not run down an answer. You have freedom to think about why was that said in the presence of God? Because your listening, your thinking is in the presence of God. And so when you're listening, you're in this mode of 
luxuriating in the text. You're in this mode of lying a soak in the text. You, you have the slow, gentle reading where you're able to feel the emotions, feel the force. You're able to enter into the world of the text and, and go, that makes no sense at all. And you have the freedom to do that because this is all part of listening. You have the freedom to see the strangeness of the text. That's so strange. You have the freedom to admit that the Bible is strange. It's strange. Even the, the passages that you think you've got down since you were in Sunday school, the Bible is strange. It's a foreign word. It's not natural to you. The meaning of the scriptures, the meaning of the gospel is not found inside of you. It's not natural to your thinking or your feeling. So that's why you're so free to actually think and feel what's happening in the text and the world of the text. Because this is something new and strange. The Bible is a stranger thing. And that's so freeing. It's so freeing to approach the Bible this way. You're free to experience your weakness that's exposed by the text, your sin that you see in the text. That's me, you can say, and you're free to do that. You don't have to hide it. It's not tragic. It's not traumatic. Oh, my word, I just, the Bible is not opening it up and you being condemned. That's the law, which the law is very good at. But because we're listening and we're listening in grace, we're actually free to be like, yeah, golly, I do that and I just did that. And yeah, that's me. That's the way I think and I feel. Oh, my word. I didn't think I was like Samson. I'm like just like Samson. Right? Um, here's what happens. And I'm going to wrap it up. Listening usually turns into thinking. It just happens. And you know what? When you start thinking in the world of the text, you know what the ancients used to call that? And you're doing it and you didn't even know it. Bible thinking. And we didn't have to create a five-step Bible meditation program. When you're listening, you naturally start thinking because that's the way God made you. But you're thinking in the presence of God. And so the thinking naturally turns into a conversation now, which is called prayer. And natural communion with God, which is a big word today. Everybody's after communion with God. Here's the spiritual discipline to get you to commune with God. Well, what if the way to commune with God is him speaking you back to life again? And as you're being spoken and you're thinking and listening and you're thinking, now you're thinking in the presence of God, you're doing scripture meditation, holy cow. And then now you start talking to God about what you're thinking about while you've been thinking about it in front of him anyway. And you're praying and you're experiencing God, Jesus in the fire with you, just like that, just like that changes everything. I had, before, I had a methodology for every single one of those things. I hated it. Absolutely hated it. It's just like Luther. I hate it. Hate you, God. This sucks. Can't do all these things. 
right? But grace, I love you, God. But this is love, not that we love God, but that he loved us. Well, now I love you because you love me, right? If I don't get that straight, the gospel gets that straight for us. Okay, I have to end. There is other practical things that I do, um, but that's basically it. So for right now, what I would say to y'all, you open the scripture, you, you know, do you want a reading plan? Sure, sure. You know, do you, what do you do, Jeff? Well, I usually do like I preach. I usually alternate between an Old Testament and a New Testament. So let's say if I'm reading in Romans, um, one day I might read Romans, and I just start systematically reading through Romans, right? And then the next day I might, like, be reading the Psalms at the same time, and I kind of go back and forth. Old Testament, New Testament. Sometimes I'll read all of Romans and then read all the Psalms. Or one day it's Romans, one day it's the Psalms. What? I don't have a real fixed plan, but I do know I generally, and then it's like, what do you do? Well, I get up and I say, oh, God, speak me back to life again, and then I read. Well, how much do you read? Well, sometimes it's like a word. Because now I'm like, what the Bible? I, now I'm like thinking and asking questions and I'm talking to him about that. And that was it. Yep, that was it. Sometimes um, it's a paragraph. Sometimes it's a sentence. Sometimes it's one story if I'm in a narrative. I generally make a habit of only sticking to one thing. I'm not the Bible in a year, dude. Can't do that stuff. Um, well, how long do you read? Well, because they make you read so much, which is fine, right? But I'm a, I'm a one idea dude. I'm a one story dude. I'm a one thought unit dude. And so what does that mean? Well, it means for me, like if I'm in stories or narratives, I'm just gonna read one story. I'm not gonna read two in a row. I can't think about two stories at the same time. Can you? I mean, we just get going to the demoniac, and now I'm with a woman that touches Jesus right beside each other. I can't do both of those. No. Because by far, if I'm listening, I can't get that far. I never get that far. If you're in a Proverbs, like, you're going to read one thought unit. So generally, you're going to see one idea they're talking about. Well, how do you know the ideas? Well, they're either going to tell you or they're going to give you an image. And so you think about the image. You're listening to the image. You're listening to the words. If you're in a psalm, it's generally one psalm, generally one psalm. But they, those, some of the longer ones can be broken up. You can see it. It's naturally broken up. So maybe I only get one through six on this one. If I'm in history, I'll usually, if it's a long history that involves like five chapters, I'll just do, uh, well, this one's talking about the setting. So I'll just read about the setting. That's it. But you're listening. And then you're asking questions, and you're feeling it, and you're, you're stepping into it. And so the, what I do is I have three reads. The first read is for me. It's just whatever I want. I'm, I have no agenda. It's just I'm reading for me. I'm reading to be fed. My second reading is I want to go into the world of the text. I want to listen to the world. One, I'm just listening. It's just, well, what? No expectations. I'm just listening. Just be spoken back to life again. Well, what happened? Well, today, nothing. Oh, well, right? 
second read, I'm going to read to the, li the life of the, if I'm going a little more in depth into this text, I'm going to read the life of the world of the text, what's going on in the world. Third read, I'm reading for other people. In other words, I'm thinking of other people when I read this text. And then I start praying for them. That's it. So maybe two verses I read and I thought and it fed my soul and then I read those two verses again and it's like, wow, what's going on in the world of this text? Now I'm paying attention to what that person said. Ooh, boy, that person didn't like what you said. Right? That's my second read. Third read, I'm reading this for Nancy. I'm reading this for my kids. I'm reading this for you. And then I, wow, man, I need to pray for, I need to pray about this. Oh, my word, what about that? Oh, yeah, this bothers me. I got to pray for this. See how this works? That's it. Amen. Go in peace. Go get your kids because I'm in trouble. <laughs>